My name is Ernesto Morales, and I want to thank you for listening in on this very special presentation of The Reality Dysfunction. This talk is part of the Mexicanos 2070 monthly webinar series and is titled, What Do We Know About COVID-19 Infections and Death Among Latinos? It was given Thursday, November 19, 2020 by Rogelio Sainz, a professor of demography at the University of Texas, San Antonio, and Dr. Julian Perez, a physician at CMAR Health Services in Seattle, Washington. Dr. Perez is also a survivor of COVID-19. We hope you enjoy this very special presentation. Yes, good afternoon. Buenas tardes to everybody. Uh, my name is Armando Rendon. I'm, I'm a member of Mexicanos 2070. It's Mexicanos 2070. Welcoming you to our monthly webinar, uh, which uh, today is going to um, feature the topic of the impact of COVID-19 on uh, Latinos, Chicanos, and people from all over the world who are who call ourselves Latinos. It seems to me that's one of the issues that we're going to talk about, uh, what we're called and how we're, uh, how we're identified in this, uh, in this pandemic. Uh, we're going to have with us uh, uh, two persons, uh, Dr. Rogelio Sainz, whom I'll introduce in a moment, and uh, we expect a Dr. Julian Perez, who's an MD, <clears throat> to join us uh, around 12.30 or so. Uh, I'm saying that uh, with, with uh, one caution, that he is on, on the lines. He is a uh, practicing uh, physician at uh, CMAR Community Health Centers in Seattle, Washington. He hopes to have a you know, an opening in his schedule from uh, treating people with COVID at around 12.30. So hopefully he'll he'll be able to join us. Uh, right now, let me uh, say something about uh, Dr. Sainz, who is a demographer. He's a professor in the Department of uh, Demography at the University of Texas in San Antonio. And he's also a policy fellow of the Carsey University of Texas, I'm sorry, at the Carsey School of Public Policy at the University of New Hampshire. In 2018, the American Association for Access, Equity, and Diversity presented uh, Dr. Science its Cesar, uh, Cesar Estrada Chavez Award, an honor that recognizes an individual who has demonstrated leadership in support of workers' rights and humanitarian issues. Uh, Dr. Science, you've written extensively in the areas of democracy, demography, uh, Latinos, Latinas, race and ethnic relations, inequality, immigration, public policy, social justice, and human rights. Now you've added infectious diseases. And uh, that's, that's interesting to me because um, before I, uh, we started hearing about demography, I mean, the, the, the pandemic, and then I heard of your work, I had never thought of you know, dem demographics and coming into play. We're talking about infectious diseases. Now, you're the expert. Can you tell me how, how you made that connection and, and why? First of all, uh, thank you very much, uh, uh, Professor Rendon, for, for the invitation. I really appreciate it. Uh, my work has uh, always looked at uh, the Latino uh, population, and in particular, demography is a very, very broad um, field that, inc that includes population change, population growth, and the manner in which populations change, which are associated, for example, with mortality, uh, as well as births, as, as you have those, uh, that combination that uh, leads that. So I have done some work uh, on issues having to do with health disparities and, and so forth, um, and mortality kinds of issues uh, as well, not specifically with the infectious uh, diseases, but it um, 
but the kind of work that I was doing was very much uh, demographic kind of work, uh, compiling data and analyzing data. Uh, so very much in line with the kind of work that I've been doing uh, overall. Mm-hmm. So how did that lead you to, I know the pandemic was like a major yeah. issue going on in the whole country, but yeah. what led you to do actual studies involving Latinos? Yeah, well, what, what happened is uh, very early on in the in the pandemic, and we're talking about, uh, by the time we're talking about uh, late March, and particularly in what was going on in New York and Boston and other locations, Chicago as well, some of those early kind of... Uh, places where, where the uh, coronavirus really impacted the, the population. And I think that we're beginning to see for the African-American population that there were uh, researchers who were putting out data already that was showing the impact that it was having, but there was very, very little information on the Latino population. Mm-hmm. So that's when I had found from uh, the Black Lives Matter, there was a, a particular document that they had that had the links to each of the state portals that had, and at that particular time, there were only about 10 or 12 um, uh, locations uh, throughout the country that were providing data on the, on the basis of race or Latino origin. So I went there and I visited every week or so and tried to compile data mm-hmm. uh, to show uh, what, what was going on in the, in the, in the Latino uh, communities. And as we've talked about, uh, Armando, early on, it was very very limited information and the whole thing of the way we defined uh, Latinos and how, how we're defined, for example, with the Census Bureau, the Office of Management and Budget, where we're not a race, we're an ethnic group. Uh, so that made it very difficult because uh, in many of the states at that time, and even today, I, I would say there's probably about a third of the states that do not uh, disaggregate Latinos from the racial category that they that they identify with. So that in states, for example, where Latinos identify as white, for example, Latinos are double counted as Latino, but also as, as uh, members of the white population. And that makes it very difficult to, to kind of um, compare the two, because if you're including Latinos who classify themselves as white, it seems to indicate in those particular states that whites are dying at higher rates than they actually are. But it's because you have the the uh, the uh, Latino population in there. But what I have done is uh, from the time early on is I was able then to just concentrate on the on the Latino population in that way, and in particular looking at states throughout the country where we were able to determine where it was, that there were the hot spots that were occurring and, and so forth. And at the aggregate level, there are states, again, that, uh, that provide information that distinguishes the two whites and, and, uh, and Latinos. And some of the latest work there that I've been doing uh, has been showing that Latinos and African-Americans are dying at rates that are over three times higher than, than, the, than the white population. You see that in the Native American population, about two and a half times higher and even with the Asian population, despite having higher socioeconomic levels, dying every year much, much, much less than the white population, even Asians are dying at about rates that are about 30% higher than, than, than the white population. That's a, a, an issue that really got my attention. Uh, you you uh, issued a report, I think it's been about a month or so ago, which got attention of uh, some news, news uh, outlets. And uh, somehow I got a hold of it. It's titled, What Do We Know About COVID-19 Infections and Deaths Among Latinos? Point out the fact that Mexican Americans and Latinos, you know, are 
seem to be uh, having less deaths as such, so they're underrepresented mm -hmm. in that regard. Yeah. But you said that they're also overrepresented. I'm trying to I'm trying to find the uh, the reference here. They're actually overrepresented in regards to the uh, infections. Uh huh. Yeah. But yeah. you're also saying that we don't have enough information about real uh, infection rates. Among right. You know, so we don't know the whole picture. Yeah. Yeah. So, so that, I mean, that's kind of a quandary, isn't it? I mean, we're. Yeah. So, so first of all, in terms of uh, the early, uh, this was, I think, the, the first uh, uh, report that I did uh, that was published with Latino Decisions. And at that particular time, I think that was in early May. And it was uh, showing that as, as I was doing the analysis uh, of, the, of all the states, and it was showing that almost in all the states that had data for the Latino population, that Latinos were overrepresented among uh, people who were contracting the uh, the coronavirus relative to their their presence in 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 the populations of those states and then early on it was showing that there was only one state and that was the state of New York where Latinos were overrepresented among people who were dying from from uh, from covid-19 which tended to be kind of a paradox that we were dying at a much much higher rates with excuse me catching the virus, but we were less likely to be dying. Mm -hmm. And what was going on there is the youthfulness of the Latino population, that we're a very youthful population, uh, median age of 29 mm -hmm. versus the white population, 44. One third of uh, Latinos are less than 18 years of age wow. with, uh, with the white population, 20% or 65 or over. So that was what was going on. And once early on, I found data for the state of uh, California, uh, the city of New York, and uh, somehow uh, also the, the state of uh, Utah that had the, the data broken down by age and how people were dying. And once you use demographic kind of techniques to adjust for age differences, that's where it was very, very obvious that uh, that once you adjust for the age differences, that Latinos were dying at rates that were much higher than the white population. So that, uh, and that is because so many of us are in the in the younger age categories. Now that we have the data broken down by age and so forth, you you see mm. that particularly in the age categories from 15 all the way to about 64 or so, Latinos are dying at rates that are, and you're comparing now people of the same ages, whites to Latinos or African Americans to Latinos to whites. Now we're seeing them that in some of these, you have Latinos that are dying at rates that are about eight or nine times higher. Uh, and that has to do, I think, uh, a lot with, from early on, it was very obvious that uh, Latinos and African Americans were more likely to be working on the front lines, people that were working in meatpacking, people that were working in grocery stores, people who were uh, shelving product, uh, groceries and so forth, and agriculture and so forth, when they were exposed to, to the coronavirus, much more so, and whites were much more likely to be able to work from home. That early on, the Pew Research Foundation uh, Center was saying that people of color didn't have the luxury to be able to protect themselves and work from home. Uh, yeah. It's interesting to me that um, also just getting information to, to our population group may be more difficult. I'm sure the uh, Spanish language uh, media yep. were getting the word out, but um, uh, if, if we don't have access to that or you know, because of, of uh, Job schedules and whatnot. We don't get to you know see that information. Or it's not it's not drilled into us enough that, or hasn't been drilled enough in, into us enough that 
you have to wear a mask and you have to wash exactly. your hands. Yeah, um, yeah. It probably contributes to, you know, so I think to some extent. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And well, especially early on where there was uh, limited information, there was so much confusion. I mean, this was a total life-changing event that was taking place right before our eyes and people were trying to adjust and so forth. And then, of course, we have uh, the misinformation that uh, President Trump was uh, was also promoting and so forth and at, at various uh, states uh, down into into uh, state levels and at the community level and so forth that there was a lot of, of misinformation that was also being being presented uh, and then the push that was also going on in terms of opening states up for business and so forth was another yes. major push that tended to make it make the case that it was not as worse as as uh, as we were being led to believe to try to open up the economy and i think that that we saw in uh, in july when we had the first big major spike uh that was as uh, as the economies were opening up and it was again people of color uh, predominantly latino and african americans that were the ones that were greater exposed and we saw those spikes that were taking place in california that were taking place in in arizona that were taking place in texas they were taking place in florida and and these other locations where we were seeing those early kind of um um uh, business opening up uh, and in many respects, uh, uh, it, it has, again, have been people of color that have been put on the front lines. In, in some respects, uh, we have been the cannon fodder that has, uh, that has kept the economy going and, and, and so forth. And at the same time, putting our lives at risk. Uh, with those kind of situations where uh, Latinos and African-Americans and also Native Americans as well, that these are people with pre-existing conditions yes. that, uh, that also uh, put them greater at risk. Uh, and in the case of Latinos in particular, a high proportion of Latinos do not have uh, um, health care insurance. In the U.S., 26% of Latinos, 19 to 64, do not have health care insurance. In Texas, yeah. it's much higher, 38%. So you have all these uh, risk factors that are associated uh, with uh, with for the for people of color, particularly Latinos. I want to get to that, uh, especially with uh, uh, Dr. Perez, who will be joining us. I hope I think he has some really specific thoughts about that. But um, uh, you point out you point out an issue that uh, in terms of being able, having access, what you I think you have like four or five or six points that you raise. In your in this report, and it, um, uh, it you know it, it lays out the uh, age structure of the uh, of the Latino population. So that's something that you know it, it doesn't it doesn't jive with the rest of the certainly the majority population. Uh-huh, right. Did, did you understand that before? Uh, I'm, I'm not questioning your your yeah. background, but yeah, it, something that you're aware of that you know could could have have impact in this regard. Yeah, uh, because in in terms of the demography, when we're looking at uh, yeah. births, where we're looking at all these factors, we know that the most important factor that is associated with kind of differences that we see across groups, for example, or countries or states or whatever the case may be, is the age structure of, uh, of the population. So that, uh, for example, just to, to give you kind of a crude example, would be if we compared, for example, the death rate, uh, just the number of people who died per 1,000 people in the population of a country, let's say like Spain, uh, mm-hmm. that is European country, uh, advanced and so forth. And then a country like Mali, for example, in, uh, in Africa, a very poor country. And, uh, we just calculate the crude death rates. And it is likely 
that Spain would have more people dying for every 1,000 people in the population compared to the the country of Mali, but that has to do with the fact that uh, that Spain is a very old, older country, uh, where mm-hmm. you have about 23, 24 percent of the population are 65 and older. In Mali, the population that is 65 or older is about three percent or so, because it's a very useful uh, country. So those kind of things, in terms of uh, um, tools to try to adjust for those differences, is the the age structure in, in terms of controlling for that. And then you can, you can make comparisons very uh, clearly because you've eliminated that, uh, that uh, possibility. It still raises a question in my mind about the impact on, on Latinos. And in terms of the, the present, obviously there's a tremendous impact. But long term, I'd, I'd like you to, to, to think about that. But um, what, what I wanted to ask you was, uh, before we get to that, is um, how many Latinos... Uh, using that term, you know, uh, yep. whatever it means, yeah. um, uh, are being missed, actually not being counted because they're counted as white or even as black. Uh, mm-hmm. People coming from uh, Cuba, Dominican Republic, and what have you, right. uh, they're they're listed racially, uh-huh. but in ethically, ethically, uh, in terms of ethnicity, they're not. So right. we're, we're missing that kind of information. Yep. How do you make up for it? Or can you? You, uh, right now, you can't for the most part because uh, and and what you're seeing is where you're. I think for the most part, uh, the the information has gotten better for mortality for people who have died and so forth. But early on, there was a lot of uh, misinformation, particularly because of of the times that we're in. That if a, a family member, for example, is hospitalized. And people who who were dying, the the, fam, the relatives weren't there in the hospital with them. So if the person died, for example, the death certificate was being filled out by a physician, by by uh, somebody else that uh, uh, that didn't know the person. So they're coming up with kind of estimates of what the race or or, or whether the person is Latino or or not. So there was a lot of misinformation. And, but where we're continue to see much more so is in terms of, uh, the people contracting, uh, the, the virus that continues to be one. And there are particular states and my state of Texas is, uh, the absolute worst. Mm. Uh, and I'm not, uh, I, when I'm going to make this statement, I always preface it by saying that it sounds like I'm exaggerating, but I'm not. Uh, and, um, uh, about up to about a month ago, there were still about 93% of cases of uh, of um, of uh, COVID uh, that were not that did not have uh, Latino or or non-Latino or a race identifier. So you see, a lot of the majority of those cases still we we don't know. So we know that the situation is really really bad. Uh, in terms of the devastation in the Latino community, but it is likely that it's even much worse than uh, that we're seeing. Uh, and to give you uh, an idea, is here in in Texas, for example, Texas continues to be the only state where Latinos account for over 50% of all deaths. And in California, California it continues to be the only state where Latinos account for over and it's probably now about 60% or very close to all the people who have contracted the, the virus in the state of, uh, of California. Wow. 
Yeah, mm -hmm. that's incredible. You noted in your in your paper that you use the word of a time bomb. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you yeah. have a prospect of a time bomb uh, that could put potentially result in rising rates of infection and death among Latinos. Uh -huh. It's already yeah quite high, much higher than it was uh, back in uh, May. Well, yeah, really March when you started this, that those first what three or four months. Yeah, uh, yeah. has that time bomb gone off yet? Or? Yeah, because that, keep in mind that 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 report that you're looking at was in published in May. So mm -hmm. the, the time bomb that I was talking about was the jails, for example, people in jails, in prisons, uh, in detention centers. That we've seen that those uh, those uh, um, those kind of hot spots that continue to 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 take place. Uh, where, and at that point in time, uh, we were beginning to see some of the, uh, nursing homes also that were, that were, that were another of these places where people were concentrated. They were, uh, they were overcrowded in, in those particular areas. And, and those time bombs, I think, uh, did, did take place, particularly in the nursing homes, uh, in, uh, jails and prisons, uh, any, in, in the detention centers as well. You you mentioned uh, earlier about um, the uh, the rush to open up the economy. That meant you know Latinos going back to work. Uh, exactly. Restaurants, uh, you know, in California, most of the, the the people preparing the food and serving it, you know, are, are Latinos, and uh, it's true of you know many other states in the Southwest. Exactly. Um, so it seems that. Um, once we, we started to move, you know, as a, in terms of the administration's uh, demands on that, it maybe shut, you know, it maybe uh, uh, updated the time the time bomb uh, yeah, exactly. even more than we had, we had figured on. So, yeah. Um, yeah. Um, and, and now we, I, we, yeah, go ahead. No, go ahead, sir. And, and we were seeing also the uh, the outbreaks that were taking place at that time in, in April and May, the outbreaks that were taking place in meatpacking industry, in the meatpacking industry, uh, and in agriculture and in other of uh, the food processing kind of uh, uh, areas that we're seeing these, uh, these particular uh, outbreaks. And in case of the meatpacking where people are working so closely to each other that it's, uh, that it, uh, uh, that it, it was d difficult to, to, uh, that the, the spread was just uh, immense uh, that was taking place. And there was also the pressure to keep meat processing going. If you yeah. remember, uh, President Trump was uh, saying that uh, he, he was demanding that, uh, that, uh, that the workforce be, uh, be in place to keep the, the, meat, uh, the meat availability right. in, in, in line. And of course, uh, one underlying issue is that those essential workers um, get paid maybe eight bucks an hour. Exactly. If lucky. Exactly. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. That's a, <laughs> yeah. sort of a policy issue, but uh, it, it's certainly is related here when you talk about uh, essential workers. Uh, yeah. And then, costing, just the yeah. other day, uh, uh, the order from uh, Governor Newsom here in California that uh, non-essential workers could stay uh -huh. home. Uh huh. But essential workers uh, had to, you know, had to, you know, do their thing. Yeah. Um, you know, how many of the essential workers, you know, have a computer where they can do their their job and not and not put themselves at risk? Exactly. Yeah. And, 
these are these are real concerns, right? Yeah, and we're we're seeing now we're in the second second wave or so that we're seeing the the major upticks in uh, in the infections that are taking place, in the deaths as well. So that uh, there is likely again we're seeing kind of um, um, uh, here in San Antonio we've been talking about I think bars opened up maybe about two weeks ago or so, and there is talk now that there's the possibility of shutting those down and so forth. And, uh, the governor here in in uh, Texas, Abbott, uh, Governor Abbott, there was a editorial that the San Antonio Express News had here that was saying that at the time that the virus is roaring, Governor Abbott is barely whispering uh, in terms of uh, no. that he has been saying that he's not going to close the, the businesses or anything like that. And I think that we're going to see kind of those upticks that we were seeing in July or so that uh, that are going to reemerge uh, again at this particular point in time. And one of the things that is also very, that is a risk factor and that's muy triste también is that a lot of the essential workers, for example, we know that in the Latino community in particular, but also African-American and also Native Americans, that, that we have a greater portion of people that are in multi-generation homes and so forth, so that there may be three generations, los abuelitos, uh, the parents, and then the children in uh, living in the same home and so forth. So you have essential workers that make contract it and then they, they bring it home and the possibility of spreading it to people who are particularly even at higher uh, odds of a, of a of um, dying from it or become seriously ill. That's the same thing with schools. The schools have opened and so forth is another of those risk factors that if kids catch it and then they bring it home. And, and of course, we know that many of these kids uh, or even with adults that there's the asymptomatic, that people aren't showing symptoms and you don't think you have it and then you bring it uh, home and represents another of those uh, risk factors. We have a couple of uh, questions in the chat. They're, they're pretty they're pretty good questions. Okay. The first one is, uh, what do you think the long-term demographic ramifications of all this could be for the Mexican-American and Latino population? Okay, that is an excellent question. Uh, and there is so many ramifications that are taking place. One is in terms of the job loss that we've seen. We've seen a tremendous lo uh, uh, jo loss of jobs, but particularly with Latina women, we've seen the number of jobs that uh, that have been lost, um, the exit of uh, of women, and in particular Latina women, and the pressures that we see in terms of the homeschooling, the caring for aging parents, and so forth, that has put an overburden on on Latina women as well as African American women, and so forth. So the extent to which we're going to see the recuperation of those kind of jobs and so forth is going to be is going to take a long time. We know that some of the jobs that uh, that have been lost may no longer be there, or if they resurface, it's going to be much, much more limited and so forth. So there's going to be the possibility of job loss. Housing is another of the major things, uh, that there are some laws and so forth, practices that have tried to keep people from being evicted uh, or, and so forth. But as we go further on down, though that kind of safety net is going to get thinner and thinner, and more people are going to be at risk of being evicted from their homes or not being able to pay their mortgage. 
I think in terms of the population, kind of the growth that uh, that Latinos have been experiencing, that we had been the population that has been really uh, the the uh, the engine of the U.S., not only the U.S. economy, but also in terms of its population and so forth. And we had already seen a, a major slowdown of the population growth of Latinos uh, with the major, major decline of immigration from Mexico uh, to the United States. The volume has dropped about 60% in the last 10 years. We've seen the uh, birth in the, in the Latino community that, that went from 2.9 in about 2008 to now about 1.9. Uh, so and now the impact of the of uh, COVID, the large number of people who are dying and so forth is even going to slow uh, the population uh, down even even more so. So these are, are major challenges, and I think that that another important point is uh, is also that we don't know uh, the lo- for people who have recovered from COVID, we don't know the long term consequences uh the extent to which it'll continue impacting their 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 bodies and and so forth over the course of the their life in in the in the coming years and and so forth thank you uh Rogelio. i want to introduce dr julian perez and uh dr. perez uh, a colleague of yours in the demographic field uh Rogelio science has been uh, bringing us up to date yeah. on um what's um what's happening to Latinos uh, because of COVID. And you have a, a particular perspective. Let, let me uh, introduce you uh, properly, mm-hmm. read a, a short uh, bio. Uh, Dr. Julian Perez has been with CMAR Community Health Centers in Seattle, Washington since 2007. He graduated with a bachelor's degree in zoology from the University of Idaho and earned his doctor of medicine degree from the University of Washington School of Medicine in 2004. He completed his family medicine re- residency in 2007 and his, and his sports medicine fellowship in 2016. He is board certified in family medicine, sports medicine, and musculoskeletal ultrasonography. I've been practicing that, sir. <laughs> <laughs> Too many letters after my name. <laughs> you're right. Uh, now, you're... Um, you're actually on the front lines. I mean, you, you, you're in the hospital, I assume, and you're yeah. taking care of patients today. Hospital, inpatient uh, care today. Yeah. You're you're ready to go back, I assume. In 20 minutes. <laughs> we'll make this we'll make this really quick. Uh, no, I appreciate we. I mean, we appreciate your you joining us. My pleasure. Uh, now, uh, one other thing that I that I picked up from your bio was that it says your philosophy of care is that healthcare is a human right for all. He believes that the work of primary care physicians is to ensure the health and well-being of the people of our country. He's an advocate for universal health care for all and supports the community health center model as the instrument for achieving this goal. Uh, it actually touches on some of the things that have come up, some of the facts that have, that have been covered by uh, Dr. Science. Um, in terms of the impact that this has had on the Latino community, particularly, um, and you're, uh, can you tell us, first of all, like w- what your experience has been over the last you know, several months and whether you even expected ever to, to have to deal with this kind of situation? Look, I'll be honest with you guys. I'm recovering from COVID myself. I was, I, I became sick three weeks ago. 
And it was it was uh, probably not having to do with direct patient care. But we've got so many people in the community that are sick with this virus right now that it crept into our workplace. And probably I was exposed at work is what we think. And I'm recovering now. But I tell you what, it's a very scary experience. This disease comes in two phases. First phase is the virus, you know, and it makes you feel like you have the flu. Then you start to get a little bit better and you think, maybe I'm over this. Yeah. And then the second phase, you get that infl- inflammation that hits your body and it starts ha- making you having trouble breathing, drops your oxygen. And if it's not controlled um, in certain cases of people that get really sick, you can end up with clots in your lungs, strokes, really bad stuff. You know, this is this is how people die. We've been seeing this, you know, for eight or nine months now. And we knew that it was going to get worse this winter with people going inside their homes. You know, how did it go from, you know, Wuhan to the West Coast to spreading it all throughout the country and now exploding? It's because this virus, you know, has to be transmitted person to person. Think of it just like the, the influenza. You know, if you're around somebody and you're uh, sharing food, holding hands, hugging, um, having conversations over coffee, all that vapor comes out of your mouth and then starts to spread. This is something that's part and parcel to us as, as Mexicanos, Latinos. We like hanging out with people. We like dancing. We like, you know, going to the Jarepeos. We like getting together with family. We like barbecues. I mean, I can't imagine right life without that type of interaction with my friends and family. And it's exactly that those social relationships and that cultural practice that has made us a huge target for this virus. There's some folks who are just more introspective, homebodies, don't get out much and are perfectly fine with that. They're probably doing better, not only because they're transmitting the virus uh, less among their circles of friends and families, but also because they're able to quarantine. They're able to keep away from the virus now with not as much impact on their uh, social and emotional lives. And we have a lot of patients who... God, they talk to the mom and dad every day on the phone. They go to Mexico, you know, every every uh, winter to visit, mm-hmm. and um, they travel two or three times a year for vacations. All that stuff's on hold now, and it puts a serious uh, puts a serious dent in your uh, bank account of energy and and emotional reserve. Mm-hmm. So, um, además, you know, hay gente que habla puro español. Some of us only speak Spanish, and some of us only read in Spanish. And a lot of the public health information is in English. Some of us are not good with computers and internet. And so that's another barrier potentially to uh, being able to be well informed about public health best practices and how to stay safe and, and healthy. And then, you know, if this virus creeps into your house, how do you isolate yourself when you're sick? Mm-hmm. Okay. I mean, I'm, uh, I, I have a house with two bedrooms and one bath with my daughter and my wife. And I got sick and I had to go to the basement, but it's an unfinished basement, guys. I don't have a bathroom. And so I was using one of those, you know, REI totes where you go poop in the woods, you know, <laughs> I mean, that's what I was using, right? For 12 days. And it's not easy, but you know, those little sacrifices and that preparation that we made because I had been on four quarantines before I got sick. Mm-hmm. That means I was exposed four different times and I had to go for 14 days, checking the list of my symptoms, taking my temperature twice a day, making sure that I didn't get sick from those exposures. Over four times of doing that, we had things really well prepared in our house. So we knew how we would isolate if it came to that. We had some basic medicines ready. We have masks and gloves in the house, you know, with hand gel. And my sister dropped me off an oximeter to check my oxygen. Uh, thermometers in the home, you know, these are real basic things that people need in their homes nowadays so that they can be prepared and they can protect their loved ones. I, case in point, I just had a patient this morning. She um, came to work and, and she got sick, had a little bit of, she decided, I just felt warm for the last three days, guys. I'm not sick. I just feel a little warm. And every time I had my temperature checked, it was normal. Mm. Well, she got tested today and it was positive. So now what? You know, gosh, yesterday she said she was eating friends with her coworkers and they were yeah, just yuck, yeah. yucking it up and laughing and, you know, spreading that virus. These are things that we love to do, but they're dangerous. Yeah. I would add another uh, aspect to, to the uh, 
reasons that, that some people can uh, deal with, you know, being, being staying at home, and that's fear. Yeah. I mean, I'm scared to go out. Uh, I, I live in a community that's fairly, uh, I, it's pretty intelligent, and what, you know, people here kind of have common sense, so they, I, I see most people wearing masks. Good. But I think they're all scared, too, <laughs> you know? Uh, it's it, like the way you describe it. It's uh, it, it, well, it is a deadly virus. I mean, it does kill you. It can kill you uh, in in its worst you know, forms, I suppose. But um, I, I wanted to touch on something that in, in your in your bio, which really struck me as um, uh, very important, and that is the notion that the the healthcare that that we're many of us are not receiving um, is human right. Mm-hmm. And I totally agree with that. I, I wonder if you can, you know, kind of elaborate on, on, on what you mean by it and, and really what it would mean to have this uh, kind of, you know, agreement among all the people in the United States. We have this this notion that, yeah, it, it is a human right. Everybody should have uh, health care. Can you, can you kind of expand on that? Well, sure. I mean, if you decide that health is a human right, that means everybody within your borders gets health care when they get sick, no matter what. And very importantly, gets preventive care to stay healthy. Mm-hmm. We invite people to this country to work, invite, right, mm-hmm. to come do our worst jobs, things that no one else can or wants to do, butchering the cattle, killing the chickens, harvesting the apples, uh, digging the ditches. It, it, this is hard work. And those essential workers, they've always been essential workers, right, deserve every protection and every service to stay healthy and be able to do their jobs and live dignified lives and take good care of their families as as those of us who are, are lucky enough to be citizens. I'm a citizen. My mom and dad were from Mexico. They busted their butts in the fields to give us a better life. And here I am, a doctor taking care of my community. I'm, I'm happy. I'm thankful for their sacrifice. It doesn't mean that they never deserved good care. They never got good care. I mean, they never got any care. My grandma had 22 pregnancies. 16 of her children lived. She lost six of her children in, in childhood. That's terrible. That's terrible. It's unacceptable. Um, but anyway, health is a human right. What that guarantees you is that in times like pandemics like now, if everyone's being taken care of appropriately, they're much less likely to, to be spreading the virus. Uh, that same philosophy that health is a human right, it, health is not just medical care. It's not just health insurance. It's also the ability to work in a safe job. That means that if you're in a, fa- a factory that has you completely side by side like that, swinging big knives, can you can get people spaced out, give them the masks, give them the gloves, give them the batas, make sure people have what they need to be safe in their jobs. It's not just doctors that need this stuff. It's our essential workers everywhere. And if you believe that people have a right to be healthy and safe, that should permeate throughout the community. And we could have kept this virus much better suppressed mm-hmm. instead of now where it's the winter. It was predicted that it was going to get worse. We could have gone from 100 cases to 1,000. Now we're like we're from 25,000 to 180,000 a day, guys. This is out of control. This is a public health heart attack. And I, Chris, you're touching on, a, on a, an important policy issue that you know has a, you know put off for a very long time, and that is the issue of universal health care uh, uh, in the United States, uh, adopting it as um, uh, an or. Which, it, which I think it should be. Mm-hmm. Um, any, anyone who has uh, uh, seen, the, I think, the kinds of things that, that you've been you know, dealing with uh, would would certainly agree. And I, I, uh, I again, I, I, I have to tell you that the service that you're doing is um, something that uh, is well. You probably don't like the, the term that is, you know, courageous, 
but uh, not everyone can do it. Not everyone is willing to do it. So uh, we have to thank you for that. Mm-hmm. I appreciate that. And, yeah. and the best way to thank us, guys, is to wash your hands, keep your distance, and wear your mask. Because mm-hmm. the <laughs> hospitals are filling yeah. up, and it's getting yeah. very hard for people to take care of all the patients. Yeah. Human beings, we're human beings. We need to sleep. We need to eat. We need to use the mm-hmm. restroom. I tell you what, I have friends on shifts for 12 hours. Don't do any of those things in 12 hours. Mm-hmm. <laughs> we have a we have a couple of questions. I, I want to be really cognizant of your time, uh, Dr. Press. You yeah. um, appreciate I got everything. 15 minutes. I'm good. Okay. I have a question specifically for you, and then I have uh, a couple of other questions for uh, Dr. Sines also. What outcomes do you see with alternative medicine? That's for Dr. Perez. So uh, my definition of alternative medicine would be anything that's not under the typical Western medicine model, like antibiotics and hospitalizations and physical therapy. Uh, we get a lot of questions from our patients in the uh, Mexican and Spanish-speaking communities about what herbs, what remedios caseros can they use to, to improve their health, to protect against COVID, or to treat themselves if and when they get COVID. Uh, we know that the virus, is um, there's no cure that we can see. As far as you know, the herbs and traditional practices that we have to stay healthy, uh, if you were to get sick, a lot of people uh, rely on the, uh, inhalation, the inhalations, the vapor inhalations with semicalipto. That tends to be really good. I, I did that, and it really helped to bring up the phlegm and keep me from you know, developing a pneumonia, I think. There's a lot of different teas people drink. Um, uh, some of our patients would do manzanilla, which is chamomile tea, along with uh, dente de leon, which is dandelion leaf. Uh, and they felt like that helped to uh, stimulate their, their bronchi to uh, cough out this phlegm. Anything that uh, can give you just overall good health uh, uh, should be continued to practice, be practiced. Everybody does different things to make themselves healthy. And a lot of those are under the alternative medicine category. Um, praying, absolutely. People are very spiritual. If you have a healthy spiritual life and faith in God, that goes a long way to getting you through a bad uh, illness. I, I probably three nights uh, during my illness, I prayed that I would wake up in the morning. And uh, that was no joke. And I'd never done that before. So there's a lot of different things that people can do to keep healthy and, and, to, and to get them through this if they happen to get sick. Thank you, doctor. That was a great answer. Thank you for sharing that. For Dr. Uh, Sines, there's actually two questions here that kind of dovetail into each other. Okay. The first one is, uh, what are what are data? What are the data or added? Uh, da- what? I'm sorry, I'm having a hard time reading this. <laughs> the yeah. data attitudes towards vaccines. I think they're talking about particularly in our in our community. And what are factors that might impact access to vaccines, such as healthcare, immigration status? And then the second, uh, what I would call the second part of that is, is there historical data for Mexican-Americans or Latinos Latinos who use um, alternative medicine? I think this might be more a, que- a question that would be appropriate to Dr. Perez, uh, perhaps because I, I don't have information uh, regarding vaccinate, attitudes toward vaccinations as well as uh, the other having to do with alternative health care. Sure. So the vaccine, uh, you know, I, I often talk to people on the radio. Uh, we do radio every day. And one of the biggest things that we're trying to do is to make sure that we cultivate the trust of the community. Because when people don't trust, you're not going to get them to do anything uh, that, that could be evidence-based or uh, excellent to control this pandemic. And so um, 
our community in general has pretty good trust of vaccines, vaccinations. You know, we all take our kids to get vaccinated. There's usually not a lot of question about that. Mm -hmm. uh, the flu shot is a, as an outlier. A lot of people don't trust the flu shot or they say, I get it and I get sick every time I get it. And we try to give education about that. But with this COVID vaccine, there's a lot of disinformation out there on the Internet. Uh, a lot of our patients use Facebook. Um, not too many use Twitter, but a lot of people use Facebook. And there's a lot of garbage on Facebook, guys. Mm -hmm. People saying that this uh, COVID vaccines um, are going to kill you. And there's there's ones that say the flu shot this year actually has the COVID vaccine in it, and they're not telling you. These are just based on nothing at all. There's based on no evidence whatsoever that those are true statements. And so we are moving forward and vaccinating all the patients we can against influenza, because that's still a disease that kills 60,000 people a year. Uh, I've had it twice. It's terrible. I never want it again. And the COVID vaccine, uh, we are going to follow the process, follow the science and make sure that this is what seems to be at least two companies now have uh, got candidates that they say are 95% effective. And now all that data they've given over to the Department of see, the, the National Institute of Health and the FDA. They have to review all the data and make sure that it's safe and effective. And if it looks like it is, they'll then apply for emergency authorization and they'll start to vaccinate people. The U.S. The US government NIH, most of the state departments of health have agreed that the two people, the two groups that will get vaccinated immediately are the doctors, nurses, and healthcare workers in the hospitals and clinics. And then the second would be the people that are high risk, um, and that may be based on age or, or uh, chronic diseases that they have. After that, it's, I think it's, it's open for discussion. And there are a lot of people in the country that are um, arguing and, and saying that we need to have an eye on those people that are most vulnerable, that suffer the most. And we know that Latinos will get anywhere between three and six times as much uh, disease as the white community. They may die. We may die in three times as, as, as much uh, um, uh, instances when it's adjusted for age. And so there's a there's a strong argument to vaccinate the people who are dying from this because that's essentially what we're trying to do. We're trying to save lives here. The African-American community, uh, you want, they, they're getting nailed by this. So many African-Americans are dying in Detroit, New York City, Chicago, and then the Native Americans even worse. Their numbers are even worse. So I think what's going to happen is that they're going to look at people that are in essential jobs, people that are on the front lines, not just in the health field, but also in industry, agriculture, uh, animal husbandry, mining, logging, and they're going to say, if you got to be out there working and you're possibly going to be ex uh, exposed and transmitting this virus, then we can A, protect you and your families, and B, we can stop the transmission. And that's going to be really important. That, that was going to be uh, my closing question to you all, because the uh, issue has come up in the, in the public uh, forums that uh, once we get the vaccine, now it looks like we're very close to it. Uh, how is it going to be uh, distributed? Who's going to be the ones who uh, who uh, get the vaccine uh, first, so to speak? And what you describe sounds it makes a lot makes a lot of sense to me. Um, we talked earlier about uh, the essential the difference between essential workers and non-essential workers. Uh, the non-essential workers can stay home and, and work on the computer. Mm -hmm. right? yeah. Essential workers can't. Um, mm -hmm. They're the ones that go out and, and and essentially they're the ones that not only get sick but they they spread it. Exactly, and that's and and when you have that kind of situation, it seems to me, uh, it makes a lot of sense to me to say that those are also the people that should, that should get it first. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I agree with you. Uh, yeah. yeah, and uh, there's an age uh, seniority of some sort. I I, I welcome that too. <laughs> <laughs> that seems to be you know uh, where we are right now. And uh, Dr. Science, do you have any any comments on on that? In terms of the distribution and so forth, I mean, there's got to be some numbers involved there. Yeah, in terms of uh, 
you look at the in terms of the essential workers, I think we've, we've seen disproportionately that it's people of color, in particular Latinos and African-Americans that have been on the uh, on the front lines as essential workers and so forth. In the healthcare field, there are a lot of people also that, that are in, in, in the field, particularly with nursing and a variety of other uh, uh, kind of jobs. And in terms of the other group have, has, having to do with the pre-existing conditions, we know that Latinos are disproportionately overrepresented among people with pre-existing conditions. Where we do not fall in line is with respect to the uh, elderly population, the older population uh, in the Latino community, 7% or 65 and older. But as Dr. Perez mentioned, that there's going to be kind of the, you have the connection between the uh, pre-existing and the and the older ages and how those among those two groups will be distributed in the priority mm-hmm. areas uh, that is going to, to take place. So in, in certain respects, I think in, in three of the four categories that have been put as kind of the priority areas, I think that Latinos in one form or another are going to be theoretically, because we, we don't know what, what eventually will happen, uh, would be among the people in the front lines as essential workers, a good segment in the healthcare industry, and people with pre-existing conditions. Quick question with regard to uh, the, the school children, and, you know, uh, yeah. kids mm-hmm. that are under yeah. college age and so forth. Uh, to me, there's a connection between kids going back to school, and in some cases, um, uh, we've seen too early, too soon, too quickly. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, they go out in the streets, you know, their kids, they might have masks, but they, you know, run around and, and falls off, whatever. Um, and they are, uh, there's a possibility that because of that, and they, and they bring it back home, we're talking about uh, earlier, uh, Julian, about uh Latino families tend to have, you know, be multi-generational. Yeah. You'll have, you know, grandparents, you know, parents and kids. Uh, you might have, uh, you know, uh, in-laws and what have you. So uh, it seemed to me that it would also make sense to target uh, young people so they could go back to school, right, but not, not bring back the COVID into the household. I mean, does that make sense? So I guess... The rationale here is that this is a virus when it first came out that we were seeing 5% mortality. Now we're seeing probably around 2%, 1% to 2% based on the region that you live in uh, because medical care is better. Uh, protocols are better. We know more about the virus now. That's still a tremendous amount of death uh, and suffering compared to an influenza season. And so with influenza, we used to say, you know, there's priorities for where people get, um, uh, get uh, vaccinated based on who could suffer the most, have the worst outcomes. Now we just say everybody gets it, everybody gets it because it's such a, uh, a proven method to prevent the illness. Um, uh, I, 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 in, in smallpox, in the case of smallpox, the way they eradicated smallpox from the world was not to take a look at the people who are most likely to die because this smallpox disease was pretty bad. It killed pretty pretty evenly. Everybody that got it you know, had a bad chance of dying. Uh, but they, they focused more on the people who were spreading the disease. They vaccinated them first. And I actually have posed this question two or three times to public health officials in our region to see if they would uh, consider that uh, approach. And they they do consider that approach, but they have to prioritize the groups of people that are the most exposed and um, the most likely to die. 
uh, if, if we've already got 1300 health professionals that have died in this pandemic, that's 1300 soldiers that won't be back on the front lines. That's a big loss. And if you decimate your army, uh, you can't even have a chance to fight, right? So we got to protect those of us that are in the hospitals and the clinics. After that, it, I think it's right to protect the people who are most likely to die. Absolutely. After that, my my opinion is you go after the people spreading the disease. And those are the folks that are out of the house every day working. Mm -hmm. so we, have, we have two. I know we're right at the end, but there are two two more questions that I think it would be a very good way to end all of this on. One of them, I'm going to kind of combine them down together. Uh, one of the questions uh, basically reads, what reaches extroverts who still congregate with each other? What is some of the language that we might be able to use? And along with that is what percentage is mask wearing actually helpful and a safeguard mm -hmm. because there seems to be a lot of misinformation about that. Mm -hmm. So I can take the masking. That's a pretty easy one. Masking is a tremendously effective. Uh, mostly when we thought at the beginning of this pandemic, wearing a mask was just to avoid coughing and spewing uh, virus or, or just aliento or babas a tus queridos, a tus amigos, a tus compañeros. And now we realize that it actually really uh, holds that vapor in. It doesn't allow it to spread out and infect other people. It really does keep it very local to your own face and head. And also we've seen uh, that there's some protection to the person wearing the mask as well to not get sick. And so if everybody's wearing masks, uh, this is well proven around the world, uh, consistent high percentage mask use keeps this virus under control because it doesn't, it doesn't transmit. We need 95% mask use in our country. That's just the bottom line. We have to have it. You know what we got right now, guys? We got 50%. Wow. And if you wonder why we're in trouble, that's why yeah. fifty percent of this nation wears masks or believes that 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 it's uh this is a right to not have to wear a mask. I say, hey man, I'm wearing this. I care about you. Mm -hmm. I don't yeah. want to get my family sick. I don't want to get your family sick. Mm -hmm. Right? We're all in this together. And yeah. on the radio, we said all the time, juntos venceremos. We are not going to beat this thing unless we act together. Exactly. And there's a huge divide in this country. It's very unfortunate. Um, yeah. And there's a transition of power. Hopefully, will occur soon. Uh, some sore losers out there having trouble admitting defeat. Mm. But uh, this is the bottom line is we got to get together. We're Americans. Uh, we're Mexican-Americans and we, we care about our families. So let's act like it. Oh, uh, no, I'm in completely in agreement. I think here in Texas, uh, Dr. Perez has been a, a major kind of challenge in terms of uh, that you see a lot of people out and about without masks and so forth. And then I think uh, the governor Abbott has not really provided much guidance. Uh, I think the, I was mentioning earlier that the San Antonio Express News was talking at the time that the, the virus is roaring. The, our governor is barely whispering uh, with any any kind of a, uh, kind of masks or all these kind of things that are that uh, that protect that are proven to protect. Sounds like governor abdicate as opposed to yeah, abdicate. See, see, well, see. <laughs> I like that. <laughs> That's our time, Profe. Okay. Thank you. Yeah. Um, thank you, Ernesto. Uh, uh, Doctor Science and uh, Doctor Perez. Thank you so much for your time. Uh, we may, uh, you know, have to come back uh, later, maybe this year or beginning next year, and, and have you back. Because uh, what you what you started, Dr. Sides, in terms of the data gathering, and and Dr. Pettis, the uh, the kinds of uh, insights you give us are, are so valuable. Uh, thank you very much. And oh, 
Uh, we'll see you another time. Thank You're you welcome. very much. Buena suerte, doctor. Juntos venceremos, guys. Well, Adiós. Adiós. Adiós.